Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the Beer Ladies Podcast. I am Katie. I am your host today. And this episode is all about beer and Vikings. So uh, with me this week, we have Christina, we have Tandy, and we have Lisa. Ladies, say hello. 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 And uh, I want to tell you all that this is our season finale. Uh, We are going to be taking a summer break and we will be back to you uh, towards the end of August. Um, uh, We will still be around and we might be doing little road trips around the country, uh, maybe overseas when we're allowed. Um, We'll still be around, but we just won't be producing new, new content for a little while. So before we start anything at all, I'm going to say, ladies, what are we drinking? So I'm going to start with Christina, because you're right beside me on my screen. (laughs) Oh, I was really fortunate to do um, a Lithuanian or be on a Lithuanian beer talk with Bjorfest. And as part of that, uh, Canvas Brewing sent me a bunch of beers. And one of the beers that they sent was this uh, liminal barrel 26 Flemish red, which is uh, 6.9% Asian wine barrels with a hint of cherry notes, furthering the fruitiness. Uh, It's it's a gorgeous beer. Like it's just, I mean, it's, it's very, very, very well done. Um, And I'm actually going to talk about another one of their beers later on today, um, which is a, the smoke red ale, um, which has a, all of the ingredients and energy were sourced on the farm. So that's really cool. But we'll talk more about that later and why I'm going to talk about it. But the Flemish Red, highly recommend it. Very, very nice beer. The more you talk about Canvas, the more I need to try their beers. Sorry, just an answer. <laughs> Field trip, everyone. Fingers crossed. Field trip. I think so. I think we'll be all be taking that. It's a long way to Tipperary, but, you know, not that long. <laughs> so, uh, Tandy, what are you drinking? Righto. I have got a beer that I think I've spoken about a couple of times on the podcast, but I'm not sure if I've had it on the podcast. That is the Black Bucket by Kinnegar. Um, so it's their Black Rye IPA, and it is absolutely one of my favorites from them. Um, I just love this beer. I just love it so, so much. It's delicious. It's dark. It's bitter. It's, it's just divine. Love it. And Lisa, what are you drinking? So I have Hope's Grunt, which is their citrusy wheat beer. And uh, one, it's just always nice to support a local brewery. They're only a couple of kilometers from my house. But in my head, I have made this incredibly relevant because even though you're like, okay, Vikings, wheat beer, come on, 
where, how, we have no real evidence of them going in for wheat beer, but, but, Dublin Brewery, obviously there were Vikings here in Dublin, and this has a big old kick of juniper in it as well. You see juniper in a lot of uh, what we know about Viking beers, so, you know, I've, I've got the local angle, local Viking angle ingredient that we know our, our Norse friends went for, so it counts, is what I'm saying. It counts. So totally. thank you, Hope. Good beer counts. It doesn't even have to tie into the episode, Absolutely. you know? Absolutely. And how about you? I uh, Well, I went for a Smoke and Lasers from Gamma Ooh. Brewing. Ooh. They are ah, Denmark. So I thought... Oh, it counts. Yes. You know, that's Viking adjacent, right? All good. It's, it's not, not, a, not a traditional style. It's an IPA. <laughs> and it, it's, it's really nice. But uh, yeah, so that was my attempt. So before we move on to the topic, I'm just going to let you all know that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts um, and also on YouTube. And uh, I think we announced, was it last week, that we, we went past our 100 followers. So now what's our next goal? Are we going to go for 500 next? It's up to you, listener. Yeah. <laughs> go on, subscribe. Go on, Aim go on, high. go on, go on. Yeah. Go on, wrap your family and friends in. Let's get this going. And we are on all the social medias. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Beer Ladies Podcast. And we're on Twitter at Beer Ladies Pod. So please follow us, subscribe, like uh, our posts, um, and support us and, and help spread the word of the beer ladies because, you know, here, we just here. like to chat. You can chat and like with us. like say, even though we're going on holidays, we may drop little bits of, you know, fun, little sneaky bits of content here and there. So just, you know, if you subscribe, you'll know. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So where are we going to start today? We're going to start with, with women in Viking women and, and their role in brewing. Well, I think Lisa and I are going to start with a rant oh, first. Sorry, yes. We're going to get on a soapbox. We're going, yes, I, we're going to get right up on that soapbox. So today's today's episode is brought to you by archaeology. Oh. Um, so if 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 you know who I am, uh, this is Christina speaking, by the way, uh, I am a historian, but my my actual my doctoral thesis is is anthro is anthropology and archaeology. So I am a historian and archaeologist, and Lisa, of course, is an archaeologist. Yeah, well, have been an archaeologist once in future, maybe, is put it. Yes, my, my bachelor's and my master's are both in archaeology. And even though I work in tech, highly transferable skills, recommend everyone get a background in archaeology. And we're both super pissed off that they are cutting archaeology programs all across the UK. It's happening now here in Ireland. And it's no bueno. This is not yeah. good. So we're, we're going to shout out right now to IT Sligo. We're going to shout out to Sheffield and Chester universities who, um, to their archaeology departments who are uh, unfortunately fighting the fight to, to keep their programs existing um, right now. So, you know, archaeology is really important and this episode could not be possible. And indeed, most of the history episodes that we talk about with our archaeology. Absolutely. Um, as Lisa said, it's highly transferable skills, but it's valuable in and of itself. And the the removal of these departments or the threats of removal of these departments is horrific. Absolutely. A huge impact on, you know, how we interpret the past and the future and as well sort of taking these, these programs, especially are a real hit for, you know, it's really only leaving that the air quotes, giant air quotes, sort of elite institutions. And that's nonsense. You should be able to come from any background you know, go to any university and do an archaeology program or not even have to go to university. There should just be programs out there in the community. But these are the ones under threat. So we want to shout them out and say, we're, we're thinking of you. We're trying to make it better. And 
we couldn't do this without you. So, nope. <laughs> why why are they going away? Reasons, reasons, <laughs> n- nonsense reasons. <laughs> is it money? It's always money, isn't it? it? Money is the alleged. You know, it, it's always oh, this this doesn't. You know, you're not going to get a big job at a consulting company or whatever. Okay, first of all, you can. Hi, that's that's me. But also, it's this idea of oh, only STEM is important, and we won't fund yeah. the arts. We won't fund the humanities, even though. You know, that, that's where you get people who can do things. So, yeah, mm. it's part of a bigger program of defunding the arts and not valuing the arts. And, you know, the arts are incredibly important. It teaches us how to think and how to process information. And in this day and age, mm. that's something that we really, really need, as you know, the events of the last year have clearly shown um, the, the ability to assess sources and source materials, if nothing else. Um and it's just part of this larger program to defund these things. And so um, to everyone who's listening, please fight this. Here, here. Is there, is there something that our listeners and viewers can do? Are there yeah. petitions? Are there, what, what can people do? There are petitions. Um, I, will, I have been tweeting them. I will keep tweeting them. It will put them in the show notes. We'll put um, people to follow actually on Twitter and social media in the show notes who are really um, fighting against this. Um, so you can, you can weigh in and help them. Awesome. I'm certainly cool. going to do that. Thank you. For right. Yeah. Soapbox. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rent over. <laughs> but this is all relevant and we, we will get into why. So mm-hmm. Christina can set the scene. Okay. Yeah. So, so um, to dispel sort of the white supremacist idea that the Vikings were, were sort of like one group with one ethnic identity and these sorts of things. No, the Vikings were incredibly diverse. Um, they, they span from the Irish Sea region all the way up into the Baltic Sea, many, many different places. And of course, the Normans, the famous Normans descended from the Vikings as well. Um, so we're, we're going to focus specifically on the, Nor- the, uh, the Vikings who ended up in Ireland. Um, so they primarily came from the west coast of Norway, and we can, we can trace this um, archaeologically <laughs> um, via Scotland um, and down. And then, of course, the Vikings in Dublin had t- strong links to to York because the kings of York, the Viking kings of York, were also the Viking kings of Dublin for a time. Um, so we're sort of focusing on that because otherwise the uh, the scope is just way too big. Although we will touch a bit on the Rus um, a little bit later. Um, and so those those are the well at some point were Vikings from Sweden who ended up in the Baltic Sea region, but we will talk about them later. Absolutely, they have more homogeneity with their horses than with the people, and that's a whole thing I could go down a rabbit hole on. But I won't. There are people who are the experts in that field. We can shout them out too. But it's a fact. Absolutely, um, and and just for for like sort of like temporal context here. So what time frame am I talking about? We're really starting about 800 um, to about 1150, uh, though by 1150 and really after just a brief time in, you know, the 800s, um, the Vikings acculturate, they amalgamate with the native Irish. And so a lot of their traditions meld within the Irish community. Now, this is something that's contentious among scholars. So when I am saying this, I am making an argument. So just to be clear, um, (laughs) But uh, so, for example, Mary Valente would have argued um, that by 1014, which is the famous uh, Battle of Clontarf, uh, there were any number of people who could clearly equally be members of Irish and Scandinavian society. Um, And while Irish literati from the medieval period did like to refer to the Vikings as the foreigners, so they were continually referred to as the foreigners, the foreigners, the foreigners, um, 
I would argue, and I have argued, and I will continue to argue that in lived reality, um, the Vikings certainly adapted and adopted um, Irish culture. Um, and this is because their cultures were really similar, as yeah. we will we will see. Um, there's also arguments for a mixed or hybrid culture called Hiberno-Norse, although I would say that this um, is clearly reflected in the material culture. Um, I'm not entirely convinced that this was existent in lived reality. Um, mm-hmm. But th- this is, again, this is all quite contentious. We spend lots of time arguing about this as historians and archaeologists. Absolutely. Uh, everyone knows. <laughs> but the material culture is where we know about what happened in brewing or what we sometimes don't know we know about what they were brewing. So there's also a lot there. How, how does that work, Lisa? What, what is it? Uh, how do we know that? Well, we'll start out with what people have not noticed because that's, there's a, it's not a problem. I'm not gonna, it's an opportunity. It's not a problem. So in archeology, span you know, you tend to see patterns you recognize, right? Like every, you know, everyone who's sort of done archeology span from the 18th century onward sees kind of their own society in it in some way or another. And I know Christina will get into this uh, very much so, but we will absolutely shout out Marin Dinley, who is an independent scholar. And she has really kind of blown the lid off oh my God, they were malting. They were doing all of the stuff around brewing and all of these sites that were categorized as things like sauna, bathhouse, you know, just things like that was what the mostly white men who excavated these sites understood these things to be from kind of the the arrangement. But you actually get into the archaeology, you look at, you know, burnt grains and things you find there. And unless you have a brewing background or know the technical sort of aspects of brewing, you're not going to think, oh, they're brewing here, but if you know, you know. So she has done some amazing work there. We would love to have her on at some point, but I think that's a great example of, you know, the, the biases you bring into any kind of interpretation. If, if you don't know what to look for, you mm-hmm. don't see it even if it's right there. So I think that's a really, really interesting thing. And we have, I would say, discovered so much more about not just historic, but even sort of prehistoric brewing over probably the last five or 10 years than we've known for maybe the last 150. So it's just because people are doing that analysis now, looking at the grains, seeing, you know, oh, there was, you know, there's a germinated grain here, or, you know, many of them, what does this mean? Were they molting, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think um, as as we'll get into with, you know, especially with your sort of Viking chieftains, they need like an almost industrial quantity so they can do their feasting. They can do all of their sort of look how fancy I am, which is a big part of the culture. This is not just brewing for the home, although that's happening too, but there is a whole kind of, um, oh, what's a good, what's a good phrase? We, we're, we're doing a big dick measuring contest. That's what's happening here. Yeah. Even though the women are doing all the brewing. So yeah. Yep, yep, wait, yep, wait, yep. wait. Okay. So women are doing all the brewing. Well, no, okay. <laughs> Some of no, it. some of it. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of get into that, but before we do that, um, we are, I want to give another caveat. So we're going to be using saga uh, examples in our examination today. So these are the literary sources. Um, the saga materials are completely full of bias and most of them are mm-hmm. written about 300 years after the events they purported to describe. Um, and the people they're great. They're, they're great. Lit. They're really, really interesting. But we have also archaeologically proven some of this stuff actually happened and it existed. So you can't just chuck the the sagas out. So you have to kind of really use them with caution. And so I use saga materials on side with archaeology and compare the two to kind of try to reach the reality of what was happening in the Vikings. Katie has a question. I have a question. So for for the non-archaeology 
people in the room, <laughs> the <norm>. I, me, <laughs> what is saga material? So the saga materials are possibly oral traditions that were uh, spoken over and over and over and then finally written down, um, as I said, after the Viking Age by, well, famously by Snorri Sturluson, but by other people. So um, so really- these were, this, so this was history that they reckon was passed down, but written in like, when was it written? Like in 300 the 300 years. No, 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 no. Still the medieval period. Oh, Still okay. Okay. Um, just after the Viking Age. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, and some are more literary than others. We'll put it that way. Some are very yeah. poetical. Some are more historical, but not in a sense we would consider historical. It's a very different understanding. Yeah, and so also, big important thing is a lot of these are Christian writing about a pagan past. So there's a lot of bias there and a lot of perhaps misinterpretation of rituals and what things meant, um, which, I, I mean, I have, like, just, I get so angry about um, just certain interpretations. But, yeah, so there's a lot of bias in these things. Um, but we can we can look at that and we can compare it to archaeology and we can make some meaningful conclusions because reality is, is when you're looking at this far back, you're reaching meaningful conclusions based on the data. Um, anyone who's probably telling you that this definitely happened absolutely 100% <laughs> of the time, it's just no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, yeah, not a thing. Um, so, so I guess we can probably kick it off with talking about women, women and ale and women in serving ale and sort of the importance of that. So Michael Einwright actually wrote the book, The Lady with the Mead Cup. And I, I just, I highly recommend that if you are interested in the relationship between women and serving ale and sort of this early medieval war band that we're going to talk about now. And so an important part of this society, Viking society, but indeed um, Irish society as well, this is part of those parallel cultures that we were talking about, is women serving. So that is the process of handing your husband, your father, the Lord, um, ale. And part of this is um, handing the person the ale and then reiterating their status. So um, Einreid has postulated that this was actually sort of a ritual, a formal, a, a, a way of formal address. And we can see this in the Irish source materials and we can see this, of course, in the Viking materials. Um, so for example, um, and then this will be my own translation. Um, so there is this poem concerning uh, none other than Attila the Hun. And part of this poem, um, his wife um, comes out to greet him. And she, the, the poem says, you know, out came Gothren to meet Atli with golden cups or goblets to offer tribute to the gods. And then after this, she addresses her husband. She names Atli as, as the chief and she invites him into the feast. Um, however, in sort of a twist of this ritual, um, she mimics the style of address and she mocks and debases him because he had just murdered her brothers. Um, and so in return, she murdered her, his sons and fed them to him. As so, you did. Sorry. <laughs> That's so grim. I love it. Oh, this is the saga. Seriously, honestly, I highly recommend reading the sagas because this kind of stuff is, is par for the course. Yeah. And um, Attila, a Viking? No. Attila the Hun? No. no. Okay. No. So she had been married to him. Um... He had a lot of wives, though. Lots and lots of wives. So, But, yeah. So, basically, what she does is she hands this to him. She she calls him the giver of swords. Um, and then she's basically like, yeah, so that meat that you've been eating, that's your kids. Yeah. 
And yes. obviously we have parallels for this in many, many, many other yes. myths and traditions. Well, yes. 100%. Yeah, this, that this is revenge. Oh, the penguin does that in Gotham, doesn't he? <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, well, she doesn't. She doesn't stop there. She um, she slaughters. He gets very drunk, and the rest of the hall gets very drunk, and so she slaughters him in his bed. She frees all his slaves. She frees all his dogs. She um, then lights the hall on fire and burns everyone inside. Again, okay. as you do. As you okay, do. it escalated quickly, but Ooh. over time. <laughs> Are you sure we're not black on Game of Thrones here? You know, no, well, see, oh. Game of Thrones has nothing on the sagas. Like, honestly, yeah. they have nothing on the sagas. The sagas are way more intense. But, but this, so this introduces a couple of really important things that we're going to talk about today, which is the the role of women in serving ale. And as I said, this is part of the the rituals of power. So when a woman gives, and and this is arguments by Einright, and I would agree with him based on like my my own research and from for my book, I'm writing a book. So um, if people aren't familiar, I'm I'm writing a book called Filthy Queens: The History of Beer in Ireland, and the material that we're talking about today makes up chapter two of my book. Um, so as I was saying this ritual of serving the Lord first. So when you do that, you're uh, solidifying his power, announcing his stature. And so people that drink after him, um, as Einrod has contended, have accepted um, his domination and his position. And so basically it's a way to form um, a war band and to accept um, rule or dominance from the, the highest ranking person. And this was, of course, really important within this this context. So that's what I wanted to ask. Was sorry, Katie, and um, was it then prestigious for a woman to be able to do this? Um, yes. Or was it okay? So it was, it was an incredibly prestigious position. This was something that was by the wife or the daughter, very high ranking, um, okay. to the point where, like, we find um, the accoutrements of drinking and serving materials in women's burials. Um, this was a really important part of uh, hegemonic, feminine, semiotics, high status. We're talking like the elite of the elite. This was the top of the, the table. Um, and this was some, this was a ritual that would have been understood cross-culturally. So it's something we see in Irish, we see in Viking, um, through the continent, Franks. This is the, as, as Einreich called the, the lady with the mead cup. It's just so prevalent. And we see it in, in art, in Viking art, the, the Valkyries or, or the woman handing the cup to, to the man, um, sometimes with a bucket, sometimes with a label, ladle. So this is just a really, really important part of this society. And would this and th- have been, um, so you're saying it's, it's like it's, it's showing power and chieftains, but would normal families have done this? Would the would the mammy and the family have offered it to the husband, you know? Or <laughs> well, well, the ritual that we're talking about is a ritual. So this is going to be a high status power ritual okay. within the, within the public sphere of feasting. So this is this is when we're going to talk about funeral feasts or freedom feasts and um these kind of things. So this was at like a ritualized, highly ritualized feast. So this this is this is a public act. Okay. Okay. This this is a performance. Okay. 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 Uh, yeah. Um, and this is part, this is part and parcel, of course, also associated with, with Sather, which is their, ma- the Viking practice of magic, um, which was also highly associated with women. So with Sather, we have magic, 
Um, and this is associated with brewing and serving ale. And we also have weaving. So these three mm. things kind of really work together. Um, and we can see that throughout um, burial practice, um, the, the items of um, serving ale associated with, with textiles or textile work in burial. Um, and then this, of course, is really repeated throughout the saga materials. So, you know, we know the, Vi- the Valkyries are serving ale, but um, in, they're also weaving. And sometimes they're weaving men's entrails together um, to <sighs> foretell who is going to win or they're choosing the slain in a battle. So, so this, this idea of weaving and weaving lives and weaving threads together is very associated with magic and, of course, with forms of femininities. Yeah, but I think, Katie, to, to your question, of course, the, your average, let's say, average sort of Viking housewife, as, as it were, is also just, you know, her day to day. She's doing a lot of weaving just while she's standing around. She's making wool or, she, you know, she's, she's turning that wool, you know, in, into yarn. She's spinning. She's just kind of hanging out doing that while she's doing other things. If you go to Dublinia, and I think, uh, again, again, fun field trip for everyone, they talk to you about what that's like, how that was just something people did kind of without even thinking of it as just an everyday activity, but then it gets up-leveled into this, again, kind of, you know, magic ritual spectrum. And ah, uh, yeah. So weaving was the, like, scrolling through Twitter of its day. Absolutely. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Okay. Well, it's, it's hey. also... It's it's also like even in the mundane or not elite context, weaving is definitely still associated with magic. Um, mm-hmm. Viking Viking people's um, systems of belief, because we're not talking about an organized religion or some one way of doing things. People within that context, people's lives were ritualized in a way that we cannot even begin to fathom. So even even weaving um, lower levels in the social hierarchy is still absolutely associated with magic practice. With magic practice. Oh, I think every woman can do some bit of magic. So I think that's an interesting, again, we don't have this kind of, you know, framework. So it's, it's just a very mm-hmm. different view. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there were, there were, there were definitely professional yeah. Sather practitioners. And um, we have, for example, like the Vuelva um, or wand carrier. And we actually have an example of the Vuelva staff within um, a burial group in Ireland um, and we know because of Norwegian law codes that th- these staffs were used with magic. So we have a law code from the 12th century that says no person shall have in their house staff or altar charms or sacrificial offering or nothing that is concerning heathen religion. <gasps> and these staffs are mentioned over and over again in the sagas. Um, I'm not going to get into all my translations because <laughs> that's not what we're talking about today. Um, but we do know that these these staffs um, and the magic practice was definitely happening in Ireland. And you're saying that um, uh, it, they were saying you couldn't have these staffs and it was outlawed and things. But Back before it was outlawed, was it co- very common to to be doing all this magic? It was well. Th- this was this was the practice, yeah. of course. And and as I said, um, th- it's high status women. So um, Einreid has argued, and I and I have argued as well um, that it's clearly a high status female position. And so they're serving ale, but they also are taking part of um, this magic. So, so they're definitely still practicing magic. Um, We even have Irish sources talking about um, Viking women practicing magic, possibly um, on altars and things of that nature. So this was definitely, this was not, um, 
somewhat limited practice like this. Like I said, there are professional practitioners, but this was part of their systems of beliefs. And like Neil Price, I think, put it sort of the best. He said, um, and I'm probably going to mess up this quote, but he said, for the Vikings, believing in the gods was like believing in the sea. Okay. Like it just was. Okay. Well, and it seems like so it wasn't like belief a, so much. It was just, yeah. it, it just was. It, it was just a, was. Like a fact yeah. of life. Yeah, because their their gods aren't necessarily, they're not, their gods aren't like the Christian God. So their gods very happily would trip you in war or, you know, cause you to die at the end because that was the mood that they were in. Like th- this, they, they weren't these necessarily these bastions of, I, yeah. I guess with the Christianity idea of you pray to God and he does amazing things, you know, some of, you know, the Norwegian gods, the Norse gods, the Viking gods, um, you know, they got up to some, they got up to some stuff. <laughs> Do we think that there's a, is there a direct sort of correlation, I wonder, between these these magic staffs that then get sort of outlawed and, you know, the, the magic sticks you're using to stir the, your your beer that has, basically that we know have has, you know, your yeast on it? Or do we think that they're they're completely separate or do they, do they have a parallel, I wonder? I wonder if there's a parallel, but it's, I haven't seen in the literary sources yeah. and I haven't seen in the archaeology. And a lot of these staffs, um, so a lot of them will have like um, like a like a basket weave at the mm-hmm. top. Um, and they're huge. Like some of them are like really big. Um, some of them are smaller. Um, the Kilmainham staff you can actually see in the oh, National yes. Museum of oh. Ireland archaeology. Um, some people say that that is a roasting spit. It is not <laughs> a roasting spit and I will die on this hill. Um <laughs> But yeah, so I, uh, they're very, very valuable. Um, but when it, we see them in the saga materials, it, they're not uh, using them to brew. They're, they're, they're. Yeah. Know. Okay. So they are different, but I, I wonder too, if you see the, if you see the, the fancy ones and maybe your common and garden one is, is kind of what you're using or, but, but again, they could be completely different things too. Yeah. Or they could be a bit of both. Yeah. Like it could be, you know, oh, we need a stick. Um, <laughs> Uh, let's produce let's have a magic practice let's do let's magically imbue this because i'm sure i mean if we're saying that brewing and weaving and magic practice were these domains of women in certain contexts mm-hmm. right in, in these certain situations and i'm sure that there was part and parcel of the brewing process that was somewhat magical right um so yeah possibly yeah. possibly i mean anything's a possibility more research is needed more Definitely more research. More archaeology departments uh, are needed. Okay. Yeah. You have we to get the message. <laughs> exactly. And you have to go back and look at things you dug up 200 years ago or 150 years ago and be like, wait, did no one Re- ever look at this? And yeah, then we examine everything. Well, and that and that's part of the problem because because for example in Ireland a lot of this archaeological material was dug up um, in the Victorian yeah. period or the 19th century and they lost stuff. They didn't bring a lot of they stuff. They melted back. down gold all over the place, and you can understand why people were very poor and you know, but they did what they needed yeah. to do. But like, yeah, it's it, for us, it's it it makes things difficult to put back together. Yeah. That said, we do have archaeological examples of possibly, you know, bowls that were used a bowl, the Bally, uh, Bally home bowl that was used with, for serving in conjunction with this sort of textile and weaving um, because there are textiles and textile make uh, textile stuff found with the bowl um, sort of reiterating this idea possibly of serving and weaving um, with this link of like serving ale and alcohol. And ale, most importantly, for our purposes. Ale. So I know that, uh, Lisa, you were saying juniper was in the the hope beer. So what type of beer? And Christina is talking about ale. So what were they brewing? Those that we know about, 
you know, are, are pretty interesting. And then again, people do some really amazing historic recreations. They do tend to go this, this sort of, if you like, Gruet route, because obviously they would not have had hops. So they do tend to be Gruet. Yeah, so no hops, but it could be bittered with, you know, sort of um, sweet gale, all kinds of different things, heather even, although probably more in Scotland. But, uh, you, you know, the, the bittering, the preservatives are not coming from hops just because they're they're not a thing yet, at least in this, in this context that said they may be here as well in some places so it's there's again more research is needed because some of what we do have is a little bit of a a little bit of a mishmash so but but again you do find juniper you find juniper in all kinds of contexts sort of across scandinavia as, as well as um you know here here in ireland and in iceland as well and so it's it's interesting that you find it but if, then you go to finland which is, is again sort of culturally separate but related where they're making sati, that traditionally, even now, still has juniper in it, where they're throwing the hot the hot rocks in the water. And I know, Christina, you just saw some super cool stuff about that, but I think that tends to have juniper, and there it does seem like there is a historic through line we can trace back of just traditionally it has juniper because it's got that you know a little bit of bittering, it's got that sort of um, you know very gin like obviously taste to it, and it, it does add a little little something something. Yeah. And, and from a malt perspective, um, we, we have done archaeological studies, of course, of Viking Dublin, um, particularly like a fish amble street, for mm. example. And we found barley in most abundance followed by oats and wheat. And we know from the Irish source material that they were using uh, barley, oats, wheat, and sometimes rye, um, possibly, uh, depending on the status mm. of the person whose ale was being made. But importantly, yeah, hot rocks. Uh-oh. So we're talking about hot okay. rocks. It's doing get your rocks um, off. Go on. <laughs> and they do sometimes so, explode. So yes, and that's kind of how we know um they were probably used um because we found exploded cracked stones um on historic farms. Um and well I will add that to uh, the source materials for this uh this episode because there's a really good article about um an archaeological analysis of the, the layers in the farms, and they found rem- remains of these cracked stones, um, which could be used for brewing purposes. Um, and this was probably likely widespread. And that's why I mentioned um, this mall man, this smoke red ale. Um, Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Which was a red ale with birch smoked malt. Kvike, never pronounce it right. Uh, yeast. Um, so this is a single source beer with all the ingredients and energy resource from the farm. And the reason I mentioned this was because it was part of that Lithuanian uh, beer talk that I went to, um, where they still brew using farmhouse techniques in Lithuania today. And part of those farmhouse techniques is 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 brewing with hot rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, Lithuania, not Viking, but it does, you know, tell us that this brewing process is possible um and they they have done uh the more group an archaeological Yay. group experimental archaeology group in ireland have conducted a hot rock brewing um experiment um based on the full which is an irish method um but you know could using, we using could we just have a quick definition of what it means to brew with hot rocks or hot stones and what does it do what does it add how does it work Right. So, so the, so you don't have to boil an ale, right? If you're not necessarily adding hops. So with hot rock brewing, you can add these hot rocks, you heat the rocks up in fire or kiln or whatever you're using oven. um, And you add them to, you can use wood. So you don't necessarily have to have the expensive copper alloy or whatever cauldrons. You can use a wooden bucket or wooden materials to heat up the malt um, to get the wort because you don't need to boil it. So you don't need to use all that energy oh. that you might not have because you don't have that money to make. And so you may not, not have done that over a, It's not done over a fire. Mm-hmm. It's, it's heated like the old Victorian hot water pan things or stones yeah, for a bit. Yeah, okay, so- wow. Yeah, so that that's a that's I'm sure that you know different places had different ways of doing it, um, but that's you know a way to use hot rocks was to heat them separately and introduce them into a wooden bucket uh, or, or something of that nature. Yeah, and you have to think too, the Vikings um, when they turn up both in Ireland and in Iceland, they pretty quickly chop down all the trees, so wood becomes very 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 expensive, and right. it's, it's a parallel in in both both places and. Um, you know, severe climate change in both places because of that. But there you go. Yeah, you're not going to use the fuel if you don't have to, right? Um, getting something, to bringing something to boil uses a lot of fuel, a lot of wood. If you don't have to do that, you're not going to do it. Um, you're not, you don't have the, the, the time, the money to waste. That is really, really interesting. And so, you're, so there is evidence of that happening in Ireland, but it has continued or the tradition has continued in Lithuania. So we know exactly how it was done and that. Well, we don't have, we don't have like the cracked rocks here. Oh, okay. um, that was, or they may not have been that was noticed, an, which is all another possibility. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably more of that. So um, but yeah. Is that a Viking practice that we haven't necessarily seen here, but because there's parallels, we think it could be here. Like how does it play? Right. So, 
Yeah. So basically we have evidence for it in Viking context and because the Vikings were here and we do know that they carried on a lot of what they were doing from whence they came, it is likely that similar processes took place. That combined with the idea that we might have been using hot rocks in a full FIA method, which existed, of course, pre-medieval, but might have continued on because a lot of the Iron Age things and rituals and things that were happening in early in early Ireland, many scholars would argue are continuing are continuing into the early early. Yeah, and we see this period. in Denmark and Norway as well. Absolutely. So it is possible that there was a continuation, but like I said, we're talking about early medieval stuff. So a lot of this is speculation, mm-hmm. um, but that's all we can do. I. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's mm. just so yeah. so interesting, and um, there's yeah. an active uh, or there's a not an active. Fulakfia in Craganon and Clare, if if we do a road trip down there, maybe that you can go to see right in the Cranog. Mm. Explain how that works. For... That was how they used to cook their meat. I did a school tour here when I was a, <laughs> a kid, so they would heat all of the rocks. They had a hole in the ground basically, and they would heat all of the, the these rocks up so they were red hot. They would put the meat, wrap the meat in. I'm not really sure what they wrapped it in, some type of cloth or skin or something. And then they would like put the rocks on the bottom, put the meat in, put the rocks all around it and then cover it in clay and leave it for like a day or two or even longer. And that was how they cooked their meat. It's like a modern day slow cooker. Yeah. 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 Huh. Okay. Guys. And, and I think that actually brings an interesting point that we should we should talk about, Lisa, before we run out of time, which is feasting, because yes. I think that's really, feasting really important. And the role of and the role of ale and feast before I get ahead of myself and start going off on tangents about other things. Um, so we're going to start um, with funeral feasts and we'll kind of go from there. Um we have lots of evidence, both archaeologically and uh, in literary sources, for for, for, uh, for funeral feasts, including um, the tombstone. So the stone was actually made prior to the Viking era. Um, it was found in the parish of Toon by a man called Dr. Peter Alfonson, um, and it was this large runic stone. So uh, there are two sides, but the one side that we will be concerned about is side B. Um, there are several competing interpretations, but I'm going to go with the following, um, which is for Woodundar, a stone, three daughters prepared, a funeral feast, the noblest of heirs. And this might be the, the oldest um, account of female inheritance in sort of the Scandinavian world. It is the oldest legal source for female inheritance in the Scandinavian world. And so, you know, okay, great. There's a funeral feast. What does it have to do with uh, ale? Well, good question. So for the funeral feast, they would brew something um, called ethyl, so funeral ale or inheritance ale. Um, and so this was a really important part of sort of passing the torch on possibly to the next person. So we can we can kind of see where this what what role this would play um, from the saga source, uh, the Farskina. Um, and I'm going to read you a little bit from that. So and he who arranged the funeral feast was not to sit in that man's seat whom he inherited until the men had drunk the funeral ale. And in the last place, there should be filled a bragaful. And bragaful is a mm. cup. 
And then he who held the funeral feast had to make a promise at the Bragafull. And so all who participated in the funeral feast, and then the heir would enter into the seat of the man who had left the inheritance. And then the inheritance was fulfilled and the praise accomplished after the dead man, but not before that. So essentially the heir or heirs of the deceased were to commission this funeral ale. And it was not until that they had made their promises over this ale in this bragafull, which is a very high status and important cup, uh, king's cup, lord's cup, that kind of thing. Um, and they made their oaths over this cup that they could officially claim their inheritance. This was a really important part. Um, and the bragafull is the name of the cup, but it's also this concept of toasting, which was linked with this idea of mini, which is remembering. Mm. So literally memory. That's so cool. So th- <laughs> this idea of, of death and funeral and ale is really, really important. Um, and this, 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 we, this idea of ale um, and the use of ale in these rituals is not just in uh, funeral ale. We also see it in freedom ale. So the Vikings kept slaves, as did most people, many cultures in the early medieval period. Ireland did the Anglo- as well. And so the practice of freedom ale, which the details of this ritual we can see from the Gullathing Slav, which is a series of medieval uh, Norwegian law tracts, has a similar entry, which is if a thrall, now a thrall is a slave, takes up land or sets up a home, he shall give his freedom ale, serving the brew of nine measures of malt. Now, if the owner seems willing to let him give his freedom ale, he shall ask him before two witnesses whether he may give his ale, and he shall invite him with five others to the feast that he plans to give his freedom ale. So in order to be freed, the, uh, the thrall or the person who has been enslaved must serve his slaver this freedom ale. And this is this freedom ale feast. And so this was part, this was the ritual with which they gained freedom. It seems really, really well documented. It's like it's like there will be two witnesses, and no less than five people will come to the house. And so, I have a question: um, Do we know anything about these different kinds of ales? Like, was a funeral ale different to a freedom ale? Like, in its composition, in its flavor, its taste, its significance, its multiple, whatever. I can't tell you specifics about that, but I do know, um, well, if we look at Irish sources, we can tell you that there's a lot of different kinds of ale. And I would be assuming that we would have a similar situation in Viking society. There would be no reason why there wouldn't be, Um, especially considering there's a lot of, oh, scandal around whether they used hops, when they used hops, who used hops, um, what sort of bittering agents they might have used. Did they use bittering agents? We also know different kinds of ales were possibly made. Um, and, and I'm not saying ale itself, but there were ales that might have been mixed with honey, um, forming sort of a braggot. Um, this is all really contentious because when honey was added, how much honey was added, was it actually honey? There's also people, you know, arguments to be made that this was actually a fruit-based beverage, a fruit and barley-based beverage. Was there something completely different? Um there's there's a lot of contention amongst scholars at exactly what this looks like, what these are. Uh, things that have been interpreted interpreted as ale in the past have had um, scholars coming along and say, well, actually, we think this might be a different beverage, or actually, we think this might be ale, but also this mixed together to make something new. Uh, so there are different things happening. Yeah, and archaeologically, we tend to find barley, but 
we tend to find barley because we've been looking for it more than we've looked for other things. Like we've not necessarily gone back to look at, well, what were people finding in, you know, excavations in the 1890s? They didn't even look at things like grains or, you know, if, if mm. they're still there, people haven't looked at it. And so it's, it's, uh, a bit, but we also do know, you know, again, to compare to Iceland, it got harder and harder to grow barley there. So only your, you know, big man people could do it, but the feasting would also, um, involve a lot of sort of again high status you know conspicuous consumption which you get everywhere but they were all about slaughtering cattle with their you know with their mm -hmm. ale i don't know to what extent you get that as much in ireland because i think you know obviously cattle you know are a huge thing in in this period but i, I think because they were more scarce in iceland it becomes a different uh, a different sort of um resource if you like so sort of similar people but having a, a sort of very different um Sort of scarcity, if you like. And and Irish sources, so we have the the Book of Rights, which talks about a lot of these entitlements of kings um, from like higher kings. So in this period, there's the concept of gift exchange, and similar to the serving and accepting that the the, the person was served before you is their dominance. It's a similar thing with gift exchange. So the higher ranking king would give gifts to his subordinates. Their acceptance was accepting his dominance, and in exchange they would owe tribute. And part of this gift exchange is, is ale. Um, and there are, rec you know, things that say, you know, 12 vats of every kind of ale. So yeah. And in this, in this same book of rights, the foreigners, which are the Vikings are mentioned. So we, we can have an idea that the Vikings would have been around this, concept of of ale and actually they're within that um relationship or within that text and they're talking about the vikings in ireland they do talk about fostering with the vikings and passing around the drinking horns so we do know that the vikings are fostering with that we know this from a lot of sources but we can also see this directly in relation to drinking ritual within ireland so besides <laughs> besides um funerals freedom what other big rituals were there that we might see? Specific ales. Yule, Yule. Yule. Now, okay, we we awesome. talked a little bit about Yule before, so we can we can put a link in the show notes. But Yule, like, it was so important. It ends up in the legal codes, you know, hundreds of years later, because if, if you screw this up, you are in big trouble. It is a big deal. Yeah. I mean, you can get completely banished from the country if you don't show up with your ale like that you're supposed to have after I think three years something like that yeah your first time you kind of get a pass but then they're like TikTok. Yeah, where so. do you go we're on an island oh <laughs> people get banished all the time in the viking period and then seriously oh yeah yeah they cool. go from island to island yeah oh, okay yeah they're off. Um, but do keep in mind when we're talking about a lot of these legal codes, in particular the Irish ones, that a lot of these are prescriptive, which means that's what they wanted things to be, not mm -hmm. necessarily how they were. Yeah. So this is what I hope things are, but not necessarily what they actually look like. Um, a lot of this stuff could be interpreted differently depending on you know, who is there and what's actually happening. So do keep that in mind when we're talking about legal codes. Yeah, but I think there's absolutely something there about seasonality, and and it's different in different times of year. And again, you have ritual with a capital R, and you have ritual with a small R, and they are, mm. you know, they they're simpatico, but they can be different. So, mm. yeah, and I, I guess another, I guess the the final sort of ritual big thing that we can talk about, and here's the ruse, here's the ruse, um, is human sacrifice. 
Okay, let's just end off on a bang. <laughs> right. Um, well, I'm going to tell you that it didn't happen. So, oh, good. <laughs> so the so the ruse. Um, well, Where's this is ruse? around. So that I'm going to tell you. So okay, group cool. is a group who were originally Scandinavians um, who were living in the Baltic regions and Northern Europe um, and particularly active in the Volga region and around the Caspian Sea. So this is way removed from our Norse Norwegian Vikings in Ireland. Um, But this account that I'm going to read to you now is the one that everyone talks about when they say they want a Viking funeral. This is where it comes from. So, um, so we have Ibn Fadlan. Um, so he was writing around 921 to 922. Um, so he recorded a death of a great man of the Rus. Um, and what he argued was an example of voluntary human sacrifice. So after the man died, an enslaved girl purportedly volunteers to accompany him in death. Um, she drinks and feasts for several days while his body and his burial uh, boat are prepared. Um, how much agency she had, I don't really think she had any, um, cause she's of course enslaved. Um, but here we're going to talk about the use of ale and alcohol to grant the girl reprieve. Um, and this idea again, with magic practice of achieving this altered state of consciousness necessary for the ritual. So she's achieving this status by drinking. So, um, on the day of the ceremony, the girl was killed um, by the so-called angel in death, who Ibn Fadlan refers to as a witch, thick-bodied and sinister. Um, and this is after several days of rituals um, and content warning here, trigger warning, um, including gang rape um, and culminating into this brutal end for the girl who was stabbed and strangled to death. Um, after after she's placed after placing her body on the boat with the other sacrifices the closest male relative to the deceased walks backwards to the boat with a torch covering his anus to light the boat on fire <laughs> as you do and complete the funerary rituals so this is where I love your how ugly idea, specific this is this is where your idea of the the, the famous viking funeral comes from um in this story um ibn Fadlan refers to the ruse they were drinking um what they were drinking as nabith, which is a drink from his own culture made from raisins or grapes steeped in water. And it's generally non-intoxicating um, with negligible amounts of alcohol, unless it's left to steep for a long period of time. However, <laughs> here he's saying they drink it day and night. So sometimes one of them dies with his wine cup in his hand. So we uh, can tell us that this was not non-alcoholic and probably quite intoxicating. Okay. Um, he stated, quote, if he was wealthy, they gather together his fortune and divide it into three parts. One for his family, one for the clothes cut out for him, and another to have the Nabith served that they will drink on the day that his slave girl kills herself and is bar- burned with her master. So we can have this idea here. And this is probably not a non-alcoholic beverage. And given the role um, of funeral ale, it is probably something very similar. Um, And so, as we said, the the enslaved girl spends days prior to her murder drinking and singing, which tells us that this consumption of ale was a really important part of the funeral. And in the death ritual, um, they handed the girl a cup of the Nabith. um, And this is a quote. They handed a girl a cup of Nabith. She sang a song over it and drank. The interpreter translated what she was saying and explained that she was bidding all her female companions farewell. They gave her another cup. She took it and continued singing for a long time while the old woman encouraged her to drink and then urged her to enter the pavilion and join her master. So this does remind us of 
ale use in other Viking sources and other sources that is probably applicable to what we're doing. So we can see ale here deployed as a way to gain an altered state of consciousness that was necessary for these rituals inherent in Viking society. However, I do not think that this was applicable to Vikings in Ireland. And I don't necessarily think that it was applicable to Vikings in general. Um, so the group of people that Ibn Fadlan was talking about are known as the Rus, and modern scholars, as I said, often base their arguments on the practice of Viking burial by using these um, Arabic writers um, about these Rus people. Um, again, just like the sagas, they are full of bias because we are talking about people of a different religion writing about a different kind of people. Also, Ibn Fadlan is using a translator, so he might not understand exactly what's happening. More to the point, these people are a few generations removed from their original Viking um, heritage. And so they might now be um, displaying uh, traditions that are more uh, more reflective of the local Slavic culture um, and traditions and not their original Scandinavian practices. And also... No, and I was just going to say the majority of these even original Vikings were of Swedish descent, which, of course, is not Norwegian, which is where our, you know, Western Norwegians and subsequently our, our Irish Vikings, majority of which come from. Absolutely. And, and just to add on it, too, most people know this. No, I'm putting in air quotes, not from the primary sources, which, like Christina said, are already, you know, sort of removed, removed, removed from what may or may not have been happening. Most people actually know this from the Michael Crichton novel, Eaters of the Dead, which takes that as a sort of starting point, and then it gets super weird beyond that. Like, worth a read, really good, and shout out to Wide Atlantic Weird podcast, another Irish podcast. They actually talked about it in a recent episode. Fascinating stuff. It was also made into a film called The 13th Warrior with Antonio Banderas. It's a weird film, but obviously you're dealing with very peculiar source material, but it is where we get a lot of this kind of viking as zombie if you like thing it really like it's extra I'll, I'll put it that way but again there is a source material that, that you know we can go back and look at and say what does this mean but then it just it goes off in directions and people tend to know the bits and pieces from those directions it goes off into which is all cool and and fun from a sort of literary or sort of film perspective but it's weird and and again the psychings are the the sagas are already weird. This is, you know, a modern interpretation of something that wasn't even a saga. So it's, uh, it's weird. It, it can be fun weird, but it's weird. Yeah, so exactly. And like, to, to summarize, I would say that this is not applicable. If this happened, which I'm very dubious about, but if this happened, it's definitely not applicable to what is happening in Ireland. Um, and it's not really going to be applicable to the Vikings in general. It is probably more reflective of a local tradition mm. and, and things that are happening there because the, the archaeological material um, supporting uh, human sacrifice is really scant. Um, there was a 2013 archaeological study um, on isotope and ancient DNA analysis on, on people that they thought might have been sacrificed. Um, they hypothesized that there were extra people in certain individuals in certain double or triple burials. Um, and they hypothesized that these might have been enslaved people sacrificed to their enslavers as they were missing crania. You want to part of their... Mm. Um, the osteological analysis, however, showed no signs of decapitation, but the authors argue that, quote, lack of evidence cannot serve as a strong argument, but 
argumenta excellentio, which is doesn't mean that they were either. Um, so, so to me, this they found two. They found four headless bodies that showed no conclusive signs of decapitation, and two double graves and one triple grave. Um, these multiple burials might not have been such, but instead positioning of the bodies might have been caused by archaeological or ar- eh, agricultural disturbance. So they might not actually have even been buried together. Um, I, I think it's a massive reach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't agree with it. And then the other examples of uh, possible inhumations with um, possible sacrifices are really colored, I think, by Victorian ideology of widows killing themselves um, after their husbands have died. Now, there are saga examples of possible um human sacrifices um we have them um in the heims Heims kralinga saga um and the saga of saint olaf but i don't believe i i really am not sure that these are reliable sources of information to support the claims when we position this in compared to comparison with the archaeological materials i just remain unconvinced that human sacrifice was widespread a widespread practice or if even was practiced much at all if at all well that's a relief (laughs) (laughs) Um, but but, okay so i've I've got two questions the the one is probably really a stupid question but uh does this uh does do these sagas is that the like the origin of the word saga because this sounds like soap operas for freaking viking times they 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 were soap operas. Oh my goodness. Like I just, I really highly recommend reading them because they are oh, absolute yeah. soap operas and actually really, really interesting um, for roles of women. If you're really interesting, if you're interested in uh, the history of women, I highly recommend reading the sagas. Um, there's a really interesting trope called the inciting woman. So this actually has to do with our concept of ale and drinking ale and women and power and magic um, because women in, in Norse, Norse society and the Norse saga material, as well as in, Ireland, um, incite their husbands, incite their brothers, incite their fathers to war, to stand up for themselves, to stand up for their family, their position, their hierarchy, you know, where they are in the pecking order. This was a really important role for women. And so you have a lot of women um, within these sagas going, you're a coward. What are you doing? Fight him. Go fight him. Fight him. Fight him. <laughs> oh, word. And just absolutely insulting left, right. And it's, yeah. yeah, and some of them have great names like Oud oh, the Deep-Minded, and you know they are they, they are amazing. And obviously, like a lot of them are real people, or were real people, or based on real people. So it's uh, it's cool stuff. So I've I've got one more question, and I know that this is maybe a little bit further reaching, and I know that Vikings were not one kind of people in one kind of part of the world, but. There are often a lot of myths, I guess, or a lot of um, stereotypes about Viking people. So, for one, them being ferocious warriors. You know, another one, the women fighting along with the men um, in in various battles. Like, how how much of what we think of Vikings in general is actually true? And I, I say true loosely. <laughs> I have I, well, like it's it's a few things. So, the idea that the Vikings were really ferocious. Um, in, in an Irish context, it's that they had superior weapons technology and that they didn't know the rules of Irish fighting and they didn't follow the rules of Irish fighting. So 
um, a lot of scholars have postulated that medieval Ireland, early medieval Ireland was underpopulated. So killing a lot of people wasn't the end game. Um, and so the Vikings came in and they didn't follow those rules and they, they had, again, superior weapon technology, so they could do more damage and they did, but you know, the Irish were sacking monasteries and monasteries were going to war with each other. This was not like a uniquely Viking Mm -hmm. thing. Um, the idea that there were women who were fighting, I mean, there's always women who've been fighting, right? In every culture, women fight. There, we, we know this. But I have a problem as an archaeologist with people who gender um, burials based on grave goods and osteological sexing. I think that gender, I know that gender, is a social construct and it is constructed differently in different time periods by different people. I also know that burial is a ritual practice that was created and made for the living. And so a lot of times burials are representative of the story that the living want to tell and might not necessarily have anything to do with the person interred. So I really (laughs) caution anyone to say that because of x y and z in a burial this means that this was this this gender and this thing was happening because it could very well be that the state was threatened the people were threatened the family was threatened and they decided to have a more elaborate burial practice because from an anthropological standpoint humans do this we do it now we did it in the victorian era when the people in power or the state is threatened they engage in more elaborate funerary displays it is what we do so these things don't necessarily mean that it was a woman warrior there are lots of other options. It could be that the people who buried the person wanted this kind of display. It could be that the person buried was a trans man. There's all these different possibilities. And I don't want to erase anyone's identity by presuming their gender based on grave goods. Yeah, it's more complex than that. And, and again, like, you know, having a sword and let's say maybe, maybe an armor, that may be like, like Christine was saying, a representation of power. It may not be a gendered thing at all. It's... Uh, you know, we just don't know enough. And, and again, there are these multiple genders in, in Viking society that have kind of been swept under the rug for a long time, but they're there in the literature and they're there archaeologically. Well, medieval history in general, but Viking studies has a white supremacy problem. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it can only get better by acknowledging it and you know trying to work its way out of it. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it's problematic. And again, the more people learn about these things, the more we can sort of fight against them. So don't cancel your archaeology department. You need it to have be able to go out and say, no, no, this this was not a thing. So And I yeah. suppose are we are we ready to leave it there? Is that the note we want to leave it on? Don't cancel your archaeology department. How else are we gonna learn stuff? But we can also Just say please, don't cancel your, don't cancel your archaeology department. department. But also there's some great beer out there. There are some great historic recreations out there that people are trying again. Not through that white supremacist lens, but people who are looking at the actual evidence out there saying, ooh, let's try brewing this. Oh, this is not going to be the modern taste. Let's tweak it a little. So there are some really, really cool things out there, certainly in the home brewing world, but commercially as well, especially, I think, uh, both both here and and in the UK, um, as well as in Scandinavia. Like, let's, you know, big up the brewers who are, you know, trying their best to make it, you know, you know, take something from history and make it sort of, um, you know, relevant to the modern, uh, the modern palate. Absolutely. And do we know who those brewers are? <laughs> there are a bunch out there. Beer Nouveau in the UK has done a couple of things. Um, okay. And certainly if you go to uh, anywhere in Scandinavia, you, you go all over Denmark, people are trying different uh, 
different things. Sometimes you get the odd McKellar one, but it's some of your smaller ones tend to it and uh, tend to give it a shot. And I know Christina, you did that awesome thing with the with the folks from Lithuania, like you were saying. There's there's some cool stuff out there in sort of what I'll call sort of northern farmhouse brewing. Also, I'm developing several uh, medieval beer recipes for the Irish corp, uh, the Irish world. So um, shout out to any commercial breweries who want to get on board with me or home brewers as well. I will, we can have a chat about what we're doing, but uh, do let me know because I'm in the process, well, have been, have made a couple of different recipes using um, the medieval source material. And that might be something we talk about when we come back after our break uh, later this summer. Yeah, because this is our season finale, and uh, I think we're going to leave it there for yeah. for for the summer. Yeah, but again, keep an eye on all of our socials. You you may see us pop up. Just yeah. So our socials are on Twitter. We're at Beer Ladies Pod. We're on Facebook and Instagram. We're Beer Ladies Podcast, and we're also on YouTube. But we are wherever you get your podcasts. Um, keep following us. We might have have sneaky sneaky little uh little clips for to tease you to tease you until we come back in in august uh does anyone have any final I mean, words my head is blown by all of this i'm just good? gonna say it but i do like the fact that we started episode <laughs> yeah. one and ended episode 32 i think we're on so season one started and ended on a history episode and i think that's really cool yeah. Oh. So thanks for thanks thanks Good for listening out. along on season one, and we'll yeah see you season two. Yeah, we'll see you. We'll all see you then. Okay. Bye. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.